Welcome to ISO Chats Theology. I'm Lionel Windsor, New Testament lecturer at Moore Theological College, Sydney. During the COVID-19 isolation, I chatted with lots of my friends and colleagues here at Moore about theology, Christian life and ministry. It's the kind of discussion we'd normally have over morning tea, but the topics are highly relevant to life in a changing world. So I wanted to let you listen in. Enjoy. I welcome today George Athos. Uh, George is my brother in Christ and colleague here at Moore College. Hi, George. Hi, Lionel. How's it going? Good, good. How long have we known each other for, George? I think about 20 years. Uh, yeah, it would be spot on 20 years. Yeah, yeah, we met in 2000. That's right. Yes, when we, when we did NTS together, I, I think. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, happy <laughs> 20 year anniversary of our there you go. anniversary. <laughs> Yeah, pop the champagne. Exactly. <laughs> uh, now, um, how, how are you? How are you and the family uh, going with all of the COVID nineteen situation and and uh, everything? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting situation. We're managing okay. We're doing quite well. Um, my wife Kula is um, she's on holidays at the moment. Well, she's on break. She's a school teacher, a primary school teacher. Uh, but because the primary schools are still open, she is having to go in during term time and teach online from there, from the campus. And they've still got a few of the of the kids that are coming to, to the school. Um, and, you know, she's finding that a, li- a little stressful. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, my kids are managing to adapt quite well to uni and high school online, so they're doing fine. Uh, and... Yeah, I seem to be going okay with uh, with working online. Um, it was a very sudden change, but yeah, we're doing all right. Mm, yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, we probably we're probably similar as well. Uh, now, George, you're you're a member of the Old Testament department, and you're the director of research here at Moore College. Um, yep. Your uh, main things, and I just you know, but like I'm doing with all of these chats, just wanted to chat with you about things that you've been thinking of recently uh, and research you've been doing. Uh, and I know that, you know, one, one area of research that you've been uh, looking at is Ecclesiastes. And I, I know that partly because you've been preaching um, here at college in chapel on Ecclesiastes. And I've been able to uh, be encouraged by some of those uh, sermons. Uh, you've got a, a commentary. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yes. Uh, you've got a, a commentary on Ecclesiastes. That is correct. Is I do, not? yes. Good. Fantastic. Way. Yep, yep. <laughs> Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. Okay, so yes, that's right. Yes, you get two yep. for one. Excellent. Yep. Story of God uh, Bible commentary, um, and so that's something that you've been thinking about recently. And um, mm. I thought it'd be good to chat about that and uh, anything else you want to chat about, really. Um, oh. And also to think about its relationship to the current situation that we're in in the world, and uh, some of the the applicability and um, the kind of things that. Uh, yeah that it says uh, into those kinds of, of situations. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, and I just want to find out a little bit more too. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is for me as much as anyone else really. <laughs> um, Ecclesiastes and a Song of Songs, um, what, what made you, what, what, why, why are you interested in, in those particular books uh, of the Old Testament? Um, well, Ecclesiastes, I've always been struck by how divergent the interpretations of Ecclesiastes are. Uh, you've got people on the one hand who are saying, look, it's, it's such a pessimistic book. Um, 
And then there are others who say, actually, it's, it's really great, it's really positive, um, provides some really good um, uh, positive advice on how to live life. Uh, and I found the, you know, that kind of discrepancy fascinating. And um, the other thing that uh, I was uh, kind of drew me in was the way I'd seen a lot of people, both preachers as well as commentators in books, uh, try to interpret Ecclesiastes almost as though it were part of the New Testament. And um, I wanted to try and do justice. First of all, I wanted to figure out what Ecclesiastes was about for myself, um, just to see, you know, what's the right way to interpret this book. Uh, but also to do justice to it as an Old Testament book, because after all, it is in the Old Testament, it's not in the New Testament canon. So what does that mean for this particular book and for its message, particularly for us as Christians who do have a New Testament? Uh, so what did it mean for us? Um, on the Song of Songs side, it's, um, it's one of um, the most eye-raising, uh, eyebrow-raising books in the, in the Bible. Uh, I had the opportunity to teach it once at uh, the University of Sydney and um, just uh, interacting with students, being surprised that, you know, just exactly what's in this particular book, it really is surprising. Uh, and why don't so you, why don't you give us a, just a, a summary uh, of, well, maybe what, what, what are some, some of the, 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 the famous um, passages in Ecclesiastes that people might know, uh, like what's, and what's just Ecclesiastes about, and yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the uh, famous or at least eye-raising things that are in Song of Songs, just, to, just in case someone doesn't know anything at all about Ecclesiastes. Yeah, sure. Well, Ecclesiastes, um, it's got a motto which occurs like roughly 30 times throughout the book. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, um, or in the more classical kind of lingo, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, there's also a very famous um, poem of sorts uh, in chapter three, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to do X, a time to do Y, uh, which is also, you know, given rise to, you know, one of the famous rock songs of the, uh, what was it, the 60s, I think it would have been. Um, there is a time, turn, turn, uh, that kind of thing. Is that Peter Paul? Um, who was that? There was that. I can't uh, no, not quite. The, the, it escapes me for the moment, yeah, but yeah, I know yeah. it's on the um, the Forrest Gump soundtrack. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and with Song of Songs, um, Song of Songs is largely a um, a conversation between a woman and her beloved, and they're just kind of trading. Uh, compliments of each other um, a lot of the time and some of the compliments are quite funny from our modern day perspective such as your hair is like a flock of goats descending Mount Hermon your nose is like the Tower of David like the Tower of David looking out towards Damascus uh, you know <laughs> it's like don't try this at home kind of uh, material. Well, you can you can see how it goes. But yeah. uh, I remember seeing once someone draw a picture of what the beloved woman in uh, the Song of Songs looks like according to the metaphors that are used of her. And it's really quite grotesque. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, book as well. Again, what drew me into that was just how um, widely divergent the interpretations of it are. Uh, there are some people who say it's just this collection of love poetry. Others who say, um, you know, it's it's got a particular story to tell. And then if it's got a story to tell, does it have two main characters? Does it have three? All this kind of stuff. That's what kind of drew me in. 
Mm, okay. Oh, interesting. So, okay. Well, what is your take then on? Uh, uh, I guess we start with Ecclesiastes. You know what? What's yeah. what's it about in, in 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 and of itself to start with? Yeah. Well, the the traditional view is that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, um, and that's coming mainly from uh, some of the lines which describe the author as um, the son of David, uh, king in Jerusalem. And, you know, that sounds like a fairly logical uh, title to give Solomon because that's exactly who he was. Uh, But we get clues throughout the book um, that the guy who's writing actually isn't Solomon. He's not trying to pass himself off as though he's Solomon. He's actually uh, someone who is a Davidic descendant. He's, you know, one of the, the descendants down the line of King David and King Solomon and all the kings of Judah. But he's actually living much, much later in the third century BC. And he's living at a time when the the house of David was not a ruling dynasty. Uh, They were subjects like the rest of the Jews were at the time to foreign kings. And part of what he's doing is he's reminiscing about the glory days of his heritage and seeing, you know, what it was that Solomon achieved, what the other kings in the line of David achieved, as well as, you know, what it would be, what it's um, like to be a king with massive power, such as those kings that were in the Persian and Hellenistic eras. Um, And he's looking at that because he's living in a situation where he's facing a crisis. Um, Well, actually, it's not just him, it's, it's the Jewish nation facing a crisis. And a lot of people, as we read Ecclesiastes, um, if you're not aware of the background into which the book is speaking, you can take it simply as just kind of generic philosophical musing about the meaning of life, how death affects it and suffering and that kind of thing. Um, But the the guy who's writing uh, Ecclesiastes is doing that kind of uh, thinking in a particular context, in a crisis. And the crisis essentially was the the leaders of the Jewish nation at the time um, were making terrible decisions and they were endangering the lives of the average person. And uh, there was was one particular guy, um, no one, by the way, is expressly named uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that's actually part of the guy's strategy. Um, He's he sees that there's such a crisis in Judaism at the time. He, he thinks that the crisis is about to sink the Jewish nation completely, that the Jewish nation is about to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's almost engaging in like a, what's called a damnatio memoriae. He's uh, erasing the memory of all players and all great figures and names from the record because he sees he he basically says well our whole history is about to go down the drain because of the terrible decisions of our leaders um, who are endangering our nation people are suffering everywhere and there's there doesn't seem any end in sight and so he thought well if this is the case then you know death has the last laugh uh everything is meaningless It, it means absolutely nothing and um the, the author comes to a point where he questions what God's doing. Um, he sees God as so completely in control, as you know, the rest of Scripture does. He's so completely in control of all things. 
he's in control of when you book when you're born he's in control of when you die he's in control of this and that all sorts of you know all facets of life and he's in control of the promises that he made in the past particularly to uh the the line of david and so the author can't figure out why god isn't doing anything um if he's got this control why doesn't he step in and stop the leaders who are doing these terrible things? Uh, why doesn't he step in and, you know, stop or alleviate the suffering of so many people? Um, and because the author sees God as so all powerful and yet things seem so out of control, he comes really, really close to uh, saying that God must be evil but he can't bring himself to do that because he knows that can't be right. Um, he knows that's not right. And so he stops short of that and says, I, I, I don't know. I just cannot figure this out. He's got no answers. And so for him, the bad leadership of uh, the Jewish nation, the suffering the people undergo, the final word being death just makes him throw his hands up and say, look, I don't know what to make of any of this. If you can do something good in life, if you can manage to eat, drink and enjoy your work, then that's great. But, hey, we're all going down. The, t the Titanic's sinking. So if you can get to the buffet, that's great. But, hey, we're all going down. Um, and he doesn't know what to do. Um, and so, And that's kind of where he leaves it, on this note of, you know, I think sheer pessimism. And... There's another person who chimes in at the end of the book and uh, with, an, with a bit of an epilogue and says, look, the guy who wrote these musings, the, the teacher, uh, he, he was a wise man. What he saw was absolutely right. He, uh, he was on the money. And what's our response? Well, our response is we've, we've got to keep keeping the law. We've got to do what God says. Um, and in doing, in giving that advice, he basically says, we still need to leave room for God to act. Um, and so even though it looks like everything is perilously, you know, awful, we've got to leave room for God to act. And so in that sense, Ecclesiastes, I think, is one of the classic Old Testament books because it begs for a resolution in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I want to take the author to the New Testament and say, look at one of your descendants, this guy called Jesus, uh, because when we look at him, we see, well, yes, there are terrible things that occur. There are awful leaders around. Uh, there are terrible crises um, that bring terrible suffering for people. But the great news is that death doesn't have the final word. Mm. And so I don't want to turn Ecclesiastes into a New Testament book. I kind of want it... I love the way it leads us on a bit of an emotional cliffhanger, uh, wondering where to go next. And it drives us, I think, into the New Testament to say, well, there's the answer. It comes in Jesus. Okay. Oh, that's, thanks for that summary. That's, uh, yeah, really, uh, yeah, really fascinating. I, I know we've chatted a little bit about that before, but uh, that's, that's really helpful. There were a number yeah. of things you said that maybe I want to just go back to and, and think about a little bit more. So, uh, or maybe just to, just, just to reflect back what, I, um, what you were saying. So firstly, um, it sounds like um, historically you're placing Ecclesiastes quite late in the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Um, yeah, possibly true. one of the latest dates you could possibly give Ecclesiastes. Uh, is that 
right? Um, yeah, there, there are some who dated even later. Okay, right. yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, so it's not the latest, but yeah, it's pretty late. Yeah, yeah. There, um, there are, um, the reason I'm doing that is because there are some very, um, uh, there are some allusions to particular historical people and events that occurred in the third century BC. There are allusions to other things, such as the exile of God's people to Babylon. Um, there's allusions to other biblical books, like the book of, uh, like the prophecies of Isaiah, um, and some other uh, of the prophets. So, it, for that reason, it can't be Solomon um, who's writing this in the tenth century. Um, he just knows too much, and he's <laughs> reflecting on it. And the other piece of evidence is, eventually, he starts giving advice on how to deal with a king who is really distant and can't be controlled um, and who's really fickle. You never know what he's going to do. Um, that doesn't sound like the advice of someone who is in control of the situation himself. So, yep. um, yeah, the, there is some clear evidence, I think, within the book itself that this comes from the third century BC. Yeah. And so because of that, um, so it's a very, yeah, you're, you're taking very pessimistically uh, as, as well, uh, which, as I read Ecclesiastes, I, I kind of go, yeah. There's a there's a lot of, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's it's sort of a wisdom book on very much on the surface. There's wisdom there, uh, but the wisdom is sort of it. It always feels to me like a very kind of um, not a temporary wisdom, but just a just a whatever kind of wisdom. You know, a bit, a bit of know how for life, but it's not really getting you much more than surface level how to how to be okay in this hard situation where you don't really know what's going on kind of wisdom um well yeah and that's why i think he the author isn't really engaging in generic wisdom for just you know all of life generally he's not he's not just asking um those generic philosophical questions um he has something to say about them but he's motivated by his circumstances by his context um, in in which he he sees that life really should be about joy. It really should be about being able to eat, drink, enjoy your work and the relationships, and to be uh, to be benefited by your work. Um, but as he looks at the world um, in his own day, he just can't see that happening. Um, people aren't able to do that. And it's purely because of the folly and the wickedness of those who are in power. Um, and so his pessimism really is contextually driven, um, but it's also driven by, as he, as he looks back and he scans uh, God's purposes, and he, he says, you know, there, there are all these grand things that God um, is in control of, that he's promised, and yet here we are floundering and basically about to lose our nation completely. Um, and so it's very much contextually driven as opposed to that broader philosophical uh, concern. So it's contextually driven, but as you've been saying, it's the, the context is not just any old context. It's not just some kind of um, sort of accidental situation where he just happens to be in this place at this time and he has this sort of contextual driven wisdom. The, the, the context is the context of God's dealing with his people uh, right. down through the ages, making promises, uh, promises, you know, to all the way back to, to Abraham but through, through David and to his people and saying, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. 
and God's, God's commitment to his people. So the context of that clearly not actually being the case uh, due to the folly of the leaders of God's people. And that's I guess that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's not an accident, but it is, that is the context, which is an important context for us to, to grasp when it comes to the Old Testament. Yes, that's right. He, he's not a philosopher who just appears out of the blue with musings on life. He's someone who belongs to the people of God. He's got the benefit of a lot of hindsight with uh, the history of the people of God and the way God has dealt with them. He's familiar with the scriptures because he, he alludes to so many of them. Um, and he's, he's living at a fairly late time in the Old Testament and he just can't figure out what God's doing. Um, but that's why it pushes us towards the New Testament. He, he wants God to do something. And in the first century, God arrived uh, and he solved exactly the problems that, uh, that the author of Ecclesiastes uh, was grappling with. Do you want to spell that out? Do you want to say, say a little yeah. more? Oh, well, the, solu- the solution is... Because <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things, one of the interesting things that uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, I call him Kohelet for short. That's <laughs> the, the Hebrew word that um, gets translated in our English Bibles as the teacher. Um, the guy who stands up and listens or something. Is that, is that, how yeah, they, so something like that. Someone who convenes people together, um, maybe even collects proverbs. Uh, perhaps that's also part of what, what it means. But it's, um, it's a pen name. Um, it's not a real name. It, it's a pen name. Um, he, one of the things that he looks at, and he, he sees people who are utterly stupid and yet hold fantastic power over the lives of so many others um, and other people who hold the similar power and they're so utterly wicked. Um, and then you've got the, the righteous, the innocent who are suffering at the, the hands of these people. And you wonder what's God going to do? Uh, why doesn't God step in? And when we get to the, to the gospels in the new Testament, what is it that we see? We see an innocent man. We see God firstly step into history in the person of Jesus someone who holds absolute power over everything. And yet he suffers as an innocent, uh, as great wickedness is perpetrated against him. Um, And kind of as you look at Jesus hanging on a Roman cross, you just think, well, this is meaningless. This is, you know, is this what it's come to? This is utterly meaningless. And yet that's the brilliance of God right there. Because that's the moment when God saves humanity. Uh, It's the moment when we see the innocent suffering um, being the supreme expression of the power of God. Uh, And so those, you know, this kind of tension that Kohelet in Ecclesiastes saw about having ultimate power and yet the innocent suffering and how how do you bring these two together and solve them somehow? it happens at the cross of Christ. Uh, and, of course, the, the cross is not the, the final word either. That's just kind of the great semicolon uh, because straight after that, we've got the resurrection uh, where Jesus walks out of his tomb. And so one of the things that Ecclesiastes um, is really upset about is how death basically brings everyone down. Whether you're innocent, whether you're guilty, whether you're wicked, whether you're righteous, doesn't matter. Death is going to have the, you know, the last word and you get, it robs you of all points and all meaning. 
until the first century when Jesus breaks open his tomb and walks out alive and mm. death suddenly is no longer the, the last word. So it means life is no longer a zero sum game. Mm. Um, it now actually means something. So the meaning that the, the author of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, was looking for, we find it in the New Testament. We find it in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. And uh, I, I'm, I'm reflecting on, um, so 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4, there's a, there's where, where Paul talks about wisdom uh, and where does wisdom come from? And there's the wisdom of the Greeks and, and the wisdom of, of the Jews and, or the, you know, the power that the Jews look for and, and, and of his own people. And there's, there's just all this wisdom going around and he's actually dealing with a situation where um, the, the Christians that he's writing to in Corinth are actually uh, try, being sucked in by the wisdom of the world uh, and therefore playing power games with one another. And, and, uh, and, and he just brings in the wisdom of the cross and he actually quotes Ecclesiastes, doesn't he? And he, and he quotes Isaiah and a whole lot of other places. But he, yeah, yeah. he's actually um, reflecting on that, that there's actually the, the, the place to look for wisdom and the place to look for all of this meaning is not actually in those power struggles that you're trying to, to, to do and these, these factions that you're trying to, yeah, to right. follow various human rulers. It's actually to be found in, in Jesus, in the death of Jesus and yeah. in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I've always, uh, this is just something to, I, I don't know, I, I, I've just thought it, but I've never really followed it up. But there seems to be in, in terms of biblical theology in, in the Old Testament, there's like a sort of a life and death and resurrection of wisdom going on in, in the Old and New Testament. And sort of the, there's, there's this, you know, creational wisdom that you sort of see in Proverbs, but that kind of is shown to, to die in many ways and not work ultimately. And then it's, then there's a, there's a, a death in Christ and then the resurrection of wisdom where we see uh, with, the, with Jesus' resurrection, you actually see meaning in life and you see that there is, there is actually uh, hope for the future and an actual ultimate meaning and there's no longer just a time to live and a time to die, but a time to live forever. Or <laughs> Exactly. Yes, that's right. Uh, you can eat, drink and find satisfaction eternally. Mm, yes, yes. Again, 1 Corinthians, isn't it? Yeah, you, yes, you, you see that's right. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just eat, drink, and to be merry for tomorrow we die. Uh, exactly. Direction. Yeah. Um, no, that's just thinking about our situation currently. Then you know we're kind of in a, you know, we're not in the same situation exactly that Kohelet uh, was in. Um, and no matter what um, understanding of a historical situation of Ecclesiastes you, you take, we're not in exactly that situation. But in some ways, there are there are parallels, aren't there? As we're in this. Hmm. This, this, some parallels um, in this kind of situation where um, we're limited, uh, we have some idea that there is meaning in life and we're all sort of searching, many people are searching around for it, but actually there's a lot of pessimism about those in charge being able to do anything uh, yeah. about, you know, are the scientists even going to be able to come up with a, a vaccine for COVID-19? We, we, think they will but uh, they're not necessarily sure if they can and here we are in this situation of being locked down but when are we going to come out of it and, and oh, i'm just reflecting on some of those things that, yeah, that we're yeah. thinking and feeling and not not to mention of course i mean we're speaking as, as people living in australia which has got to be in one of the best situations in the world relative to so many others <laughs> we where sure are. death and yeah. real 
pain and suffering going on in, in so many uh, uh, places. Um, well, I know that, yeah, so you, you, there, there's parallels there. I'm not sure if you see other parallels. Uh, and, and if you do, what, what do you think Ecclesiastes might say? Yeah, um, well, I guess one thing to bear in mind is Ecclesiastes doesn't have the last say. Uh, it's authoritative scripture, but it, it's Old Testament. And so we, we can't stop with Ecclesiastes. We need to go forward into the New Testament to complete uh, the picture. And that's not just something that it's not just something we're imposing on Ecclesiastes, is it? There's, as you've said, that's actually Ecclesiastes cries out for that. So as you exactly. take it to authoritative scripture, uh, its yeah. authority points you to it not being the last word. Exactly. Its authority, its authority ultimately comes from the fact that it is pointing towards some kind of solution and resolution, which is found in Christ. And so the anchor of Ecclesiastes' authority is in the Gospels uh, and what we see in, in Jesus. Um, so so yeah, then, I, I'll just, I'll just, I, think, I think this is related to the question, why, why do we even have Ecclesiastes at all? Why don't we just get rid of Ecclesiastes? If it's all pointing to, to Christ, why don't we just, you know, I'm a member of the New Testament department, why, why don't we just get rid of the whole Old Testament? Well, my answer is, uh, yeah, as I often say to you guys in the New Testament department, you're nothing without us in the Old Testament. <laughs> Basically, there's no New Testament without an old one. Um, mm. And so um, the, the New Testament just doesn't make sense. It's kind of floating in the air, not really doing as much without an Old Testament. Um, the, uh, we, we often talk about reading the Old Testament through the lens of the new. Um, and, you know, while I think, yeah, that, that's, that's good, actually, I think, it more so works the other way. We read the New Testament through the lens of the old. Um, because if you look at how Jesus um, um, acts and thinks in the New Testament, that's what he's doing. He's going to the Old Testament and reading the situation through the lens of the Old Testament. And that's, you know, why he, you know, identifies himself as the Messiah and why his apostles eventually come around to figuring out he's the Messiah, etc. So, um, I'm with you there. I've got, a, I've got a couple of books on that, actually. So I'm, I'm with you on exactly what you were saying about reading the New Testament. Anyway, yeah, sorry. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, we need the Old Testament um, because it gives us a picture of who God is. It gives us a picture of who the people of God are. And the, the interactions between God and his people, they do mean something in the Old Testament. It's not as though they're just preamble to the new. Um, um, they, they do provide us with substance, substantial knowledge of who God is, what this world is like, who we are as human beings, both as sinful human beings, but also um, human beings who are created in the image of God. Um, you know, the New Testament just loses so much without the old, uh, which is why we need Ecclesiastes. <laughs> And what does Ecclesiastes do for us then in this situation? Yeah, one of the, I've been reflecting on this a bit lately. Um, one of the things uh, that I see in parallel between Ecclesiastes and our own situation is this notion of crisis. Um, Kohelet, the author of uh, Ecclesiastes, was living in a crisis and it, uh, he, he was quite pessimistic about it. He saw suffering. And as we think about the crisis that we're facing today, while, you know, I, I'm living quite comfortably in, you know, in a, in a house here in suburban Sydney, and it's not really affecting me directly, but it is affecting so many. 
we're we're already over over a hundred thousand deaths or something uh, with uh, the coronavirus. This is terrible. It is absolutely awful, and I mustn't think that I'm um, I'm separate to this crisis, even though I'm kind of cocooned um, in this phase of shutdown that we're in. I'm not actually disconnected from it because um, one of the things that um, you know, one of the things we've been told, the reason we're we're all shut down in our own homes is because we can contract the virus ourselves and then we can pass it on to others. And it's a testament to the fact that we are so interconnected with each other. Uh, no one is an island. No one is, you know, in this hermetically sealed bubble uh, living apart from, you know, absolutely everyone else. We are so interconnected because that's who we are as human beings. We are a single human race and we we relate to each other and we define each other by our relationships. So, of course, we're going to contract a virus and we'll pass it on, um, hence the need for this, um, this abnormal shutdown. And when I look at Ecclesiastes, I see there's a crisis there in the third century BC, which happens because people are interconnected. You've got those who are um, holding power, the wicked, and their decisions and their actions affect other people. Um, who are unduly affected and caused to suffer as a result through no fault of their own. And it's just part of the nature of crisis, really. Um, crisis, I think, um, it, it brings up two aspects, uh, two, two primary aspects, uh, and they are a loss of control. Um, a crisis implies some kind of loss of control. Mm -hmm. And the second one is the spectre of death. Mm -hmm. um, both the loss of control and the prospect of death was what so many were people, so many people were facing in the crisis that the author of Ecclesiastes was facing, um, and that's exactly what we're seeing today. Uh, we're seeing death amongst thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, you know, it, it's just absolutely awful, um, and I think one of the, the sheer pessimism of Ecclesiastes reminds me that here in my cocoon in Sydney, um, I, I can't really be blind to the suffering that is going on. Um, and so I need to do my bit <laughs> to, uh, to, to alleviate that, to express what really is the answer to this, the Christian ethic of love, um, staying home, <laughs> not contracting the virus, not passing it on. Uh, those kinds of things, um, but also just the the idea of death. You know, we 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 are all facing death. Crisis brings up um, the the nature of death that we are mortal human beings, and that you know this isn't um, this virus is not something to play chicken with, because um, uh, death happens. Um, but thankfully. We don't have the um, the absolute pessimism that the author of Ecclesiastes had. Because we live on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, we know that death doesn't have the final word. It doesn't mean that we're blasé about crises, uh, that, you know, well, uh, they, won't, they won't affect me, it's water off a duck's back. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, it's not that. And if I act like that, then I'm actually being quite callous and heartless, I think, to my fellow human beings. Um, and not to mention that, you know, death will affect me. 
um, be it through people that I know who are affected, but in the end, you know, one day I will die. Um, and so the comfort in the midst of this crisis comes from knowing that death doesn't have the final word, knowing that we can actually put full trust in Jesus to raise us from our mortal bodies, to transform us, um, to, to be like him. Mm. Um, but that, um, that movement towards life, uh, the promise of eternal life, also affects us now. And I think, you know, it's why we need to support all those life-saving measures, all those uh, measures and um, things that we do that are all about promoting life, saving life, um, particularly in uh, this coronavirus crisis. You know, we need to be getting behind those things. Mm. Mm. That's, yeah, as I I hear that, I, I, you know, yeah, think if, if we if we didn't if we didn't have that hope of eternal life of Jesus uh, to look towards, then what we could do in this current situation is simply just block our ears and our eyes and just go. I'm just going to shut down until all this goes away, or this isn't real, or we could maybe just um, make ourselves feel better with platitudes and say, oh, it's all going to be all right. Um, but that's getting harder and harder to do for anybody, really. And what, what Ecclesiastes does uh, to us is say, no, we actually can, this is, it's facing up to it. Yeah, Kohelet doesn't um, mm. leave it to say, oh, it's actually all going to be okay. It's all right. You know, it's fine. Yeah. The world's all right. You know, it's not as bad as you think. No, he never does that. He doesn't sweep crisis under the carpet. No, no. He, he brings it out for us and, and shoves it in yeah. our face. Yeah, um, and he we can do that. vents about it. He's so upset mm. that, you know, about it. He really feels uh, the crisis and he's so upset that he can't, he feels that he can't do anything. Mm. Mm. And we can do that too, not, not with a hopelessness, but with a, a hopefulness to yes. say, this is bad, this is wrong. Uh, people talk about, I've, I think I've said this before, but people talk about the, the new normal that we're, experiencing with you know and the, the new normal of restrictions and a new normal in the economy but in many ways it's not really a new normal at all We're, we've been subject to death uh and sickness uh you know for for, for as long as humanity has disobeyed god which is a very long time and uh we are uh therefore this is this is not the new normal this is just the new um realization and clarity on the normal that we've been experiencing yeah yeah and uh, yeah yeah ecclesiastes i think gives us permission to grieve gives us permission to uh feel injustice to to really feel the the weight of uh crises um and to be depressed by them you know that it's not wrong to to feel those things um but also because it drives us to the new testament um, when you have that faith in Christ, you have an absolute sure basis, a sure foundation that death will not ultimately conquer. It is not the final word. Um, Jesus has the final word. Jesus has risen from the dead and he demonstrated that and he, we can trust that he's risen from the dead and that we will be raised from the dead as well, yep. not just ethereally in some 
you know, um, nice. Exactly. Feedback, but actually, yeah, that's not a platitude. His tomb yeah. was empty. Mm. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's a, I think that's a really great, encouraging time to to maybe finish. I, we didn't really get onto the to the song of songs or the you know the, oh, the another chat perhaps. Yeah, we have to do that some <laughs> some other time, which would be uh, yeah, uh, okay. good. Uh, but I think what what better time, what better place to finish than a reminder that uh, death does not have the final word, but also to remember that within that, because we know that death doesn't have the final word, we can also have permission just to grieve and just to feel like. Know, angry at this world and just to go, I'm just feeling really awful about this world uh, yeah. because that that's also what Ecclesiastes does for us in light of the great hope of the resurrection. So, yeah. Well, thanks, George. Um, I've learned some things and uh, I'm really, really glad. I'll, uh, we'll, we'll keep chatting as well offline, but uh, I'm really yeah. glad to have chatted. When I say offline, yeah, you're welcome. I guess we'll be online, won't we? We'll keep chatting in non-recorded uh, places. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Via our online connections. Okay. Thanks very much, George. You're welcome, Lana. You've been listening to ISOChats Theology. I'm Lionel Windsor, New Testament lecturer at Moore Theological College, Sydney. If you like this podcast, please consider sharing us and please review and rate the podcast on your favourite podcast platform so others get to hear about it too. Video versions are available on YouTube or on my website at lionelwindsor.net. You might also like to check out another podcast I've created called Lift Your Eyes, a series of 70 reflections on Ephesians. And by the way, the name for this podcast was created by Adelaide Windsor. The theme music was written and performed by me and Harry Windsor, and the cover art was designed by Ellie Windsor. Love their work. Thanks for listening.